Today we're joined by Gage Clark. Gage is quite the keyboard-driven researcher through various domains surrounding the topic of neuroscience. I found Gage through his blog, Quirky Science, Quirky with a W, where his topics range from philosophy to psychedelics and everything in between. Over the space of just two years, he's reached over 15,000 people in joining me to read his latest blogs. So with all of that, thank you so much, Gage, for joining us and welcome. Hi, thank you for inviting me. Um, so yeah, I'm Gage and um, where should we start? Well, why don't we start with you just telling us a little bit about yourself. So what got you interested in starting this blog? Um, what did that road look like? Well, the road is sort of weird. Um, I wasn't like interested in blogging or anything like that. I actually didn't read any blogs before I started, but, uh, but I was able to kind of uh, satisfy certain uh, problems that I was facing. Like my whole life was really weird growing up. Like I was in foster care and I didn't really have ties to family too much. So it's like there was very little pressure to uh, do kind of good at traditional things in life. So uh, I would kind of approach things just based on my own curiosity. And I didn't have like a real sense of like how important it was to do good. So I would kind of just like, like if a teacher pissed me off, I would just like stop taking part in the class or something like that, which was kind of bad, but I would still be obsessed with learning. So like my interest in learning was very like personal. One of the things I really gauged from your blog is that you focused, and this is where you can see um, what areas you're very interested in, is um, a lot of almost self-medication, uh, similar to Tim Ferriss, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, where um, you yeah. would participate in um, all these different psychedelics or different substances in order to get a um, uh, gain knowledge. So I was just curious, um, you know, you've tried an array of different substances. What what effect did you find that they had on your receptor binding? Um, what, what did that look like for you? Well, when I first, so like first I was prescribed medications, which were stimulants for ADHD and also uh, an antidepressant uh, sleep medication called Remeron or Mirtazapine. And um, so those are my first two experiences with things. And I think I didn't think about it all too much until probably high school when I started to like, like I would start to see things online where people are comparing the stimulant medication to like meth or something. And then I got like really concerned, like, oh my God, have they just put me on meth or something? And I've just been like on this my whole life. Um, and then also uh, that Remeron stuff was really interesting. It would, it would kind of make me hallucinate and dream awake. And so that was like my first really weird experience with anything. So I would, I ended up like kind of like cycling through a lot of different medications from the psych doctor. And I would try like all the different ADHD stimulants. I tried a bunch of different antidepressants and then um, some antipsychotics, which those were kind of the worst. They were kind of scary. Um, and then one day I basically tried dextromethorphan, which is in cough syrup of all things. Um, and it's, uh, that one is a, an MDA receptor antagonist, which means it's basically what general anesthesia is, or like ketamine or PCP. All of those are NMDA receptor antagonists, and they block a chemical called glutamate in your brain. And um, so that stuff is particularly interesting and weird. Um, and like I ended up just taking like a bunch of it at once, and I've never at that point I. I think I never even tried alcohol yet. Um, I actually tried a lot of things, I think, before I ever tried alcohol. Um, and then it, the effects of it were like kind of what I realize now is like a lot like alcohol, actually. 
but a little bit weirder. Like things would trail. Like if I turn my head, it would kind of like flicker or have like a, um, I don't know, like a delay basically. And um, that wasn't like super weird, but it was the first time I've ever noticed anything affect me in that way. And then I ended up like trying it at higher doses. And uh, like I did it like a total of like seven times with like in increasing doses and also different strategies. Like I started reading a bunch about it, about like uh, apparently there's like uh, it converts to DXO when you consume it, which is like another drug that has like a similar type of effect, but different. Um, and so like there'd be like weird tricks. Like I guess if you consume it, it takes a while before it starts converting into DXO in your liver. But if you like take some of it at first and then wait to take the rest of it, it would induce the enzymes that cause that conversion. So you can like basically like take some a little bit now and then, I don't know. So I would keep like, I would, I would dose like a little bit more and more over time. And uh, that produced the weirdest effects out of all of them. And what would you define um, as weird? Just hallucinations or? Totally. Yeah. <laughs> I, I saw like what I thought were like aliens and stuff at the time mm -hmm. and um, kind of like weird visionary things. And back then i was like really into minecraft so like there would be like this minecraft overlay to everything and um so what do you think chemically um what do you think caused that those hallucinations with there's a cough syrup that you were consuming so with things like this type of drug so they're called dissociative anesthetics um the way that i think they might be working is um so they obviously cut out the senses they make your body go numb and by the time you get hallucinations that's you're usually like pretty numb and uh, it affects like all the senses so like your vision's pretty messed up your hearing can be kind of weird and um so i think like when people like they'll talk about like k-holes is like one thing that people get on dissociatives like where it's like you detach from reality and just live in like this imaginary world or whatever and i think part of it's because it's muting out all the distracting noise that would normally pull our attention away from our imagination mm. just because that's how we grew up being and so there is actually like evidence of that there's so people who are put in like i don't know if you've seen those like super silence rooms there's like those yeah people actually will hallucinate in there and um, they'll hear like voices and stuff. And there's like a study about that stuff. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. And I think it's like, I don't know. I think it's like pretty much what I just described. Like it's so quiet that there's nothing to distract you from just hearing your own imagination. Doesn't that open the, um, the floodgates to schizophrenia in terms of like, well, what exactly is schizophrenia then if you in that environment will automatically start, well, not automatically, but people will hear voices. Um, that they wouldn't normally hear. And so does that make you wonder, are people who are schizophrenic more open to their imagination and maybe more inward focused than the average person where they can hear those voices every day? I think so. I think there's probably, I think this schizophrenia, I think is probably, well, I'll say first, I think it's like probably a lot of different like situations being clumped together as if they were just one thing, one entity. Um, but I do think that a lot of cases probably involve like becoming more numb to things. And I, I think, I think um, the other region, it's the mesolimbic pathways that get like enhanced dopamine. Um, and it's interesting. You said with the reduced prefrontal cortex activity stuff, um, I think that that's, I think there's some studies on ketamine that, uh, but they were in, I think sheep, uh, where they gave them a really high dose. Um, and during what they consider to be, I, th I think they think it's like basically a K-hole or like a dissociative state. Um, it, the prefrontal cortex like shuts down actually during it. So it's kind of interesting. 
Um, and they do actually, there's a lot of researchers that think ketamine is like similar to schizophrenia, but that's pretty debated. Um, I think the other stuff you said, yeah, it's like the whole shame thing. That thing gets weird because I, I think like my whole hypothesis with the schizophrenia topic, that's one of the topics I've been really interested in. Dynorphin hypothesis. So the whole premise of it is basically a mix of like really old ideas, like the uh, diathesis stress model, which is kind of like, it's pretty much the idea of stress being a precursor to things like schizophrenia and that there's like a genetic predisposition to how you react to stress. And um, so what I've kind of combined with that is that dynorphin is, re is a uh, neurotransmitter, uh, neuropeptide, an opioid peptide that is studied um, in relation to stress. And so, um, well, to, to kind of, uh, I guess it's important to clarify. Uh, so it's not like, so most people think of opioids, they think of like pleasurable chemicals and dynorphin is actually not that way. It's actually more like the opposite, um, which is to mean it seems to be dysphoric and people don't like it basically. And it, it's been studied in relation to like the withdrawals of many drugs, for example. So like people, people will take drugs and get like some dopamine effect, even if it's not a dopamine agonist drug, there'll be like, like even things like ketamine or like, well, that might be a dopamine agonist, but I don't know, a lot of drugs, like even opioids or other drugs, they all will cause like a spike of dopamine. And then, uh, or at least most of them that people like at least. And uh, then this dopamine effect seems to trigger dynorphin effects, changes to like its synthesis and um, causing like an acute spike and also like a change to how much you make afterwards as well. And um, so then the idea would be that like, like so dopamine's effects seem to actually be like pretty opposite to what dynorphin is doing. Dynorphin suppresses dopamine activity. Mm -hmm. So kind of the idea is like you take drugs that feel good or whatever, and um, or at least stimulate you in some way. And then afterwards, or even the more as you take it, you get this uh, kind of like contradictory effect that's trying to suppress the effect of the drug. And then if you stop the drug, then you just have like this anti-dopamine effect that makes you depressed and uh, stressed out and possibly scared as well, because I think dynorphin is related to fear processing. Um, and um, so a lot of the research on dynorphin is like in animals, but in humans, the drugs that, uh, that mimic dynorphin, uh, they produce like uh, dysphoria and hallucinations. Uh, like, so the, the most famous one that people probably have heard of is salvia. Yeah. Um, that's like this crazy hallucinogen that people will take out of a bong. They'll get it like on the internet because it's usually legal <laughs> in a lot of places. And um, and then you'd like take it and then for for only five minutes, you go insane, basically. Like there's videos of people that were like, just like, I don't know, I saw people laying on a couch and then they just like start backing up and like going up their wall and like through the window. Like, what? it's just crazy, yeah. Yes. And um, so kind of the idea, the idea of the whole dynorphin hypothesis is that uh, stress induces dynorphin and part of the, Part of the reason it does that is to, it's kind of like a training thing. Like if you think of endorphins as kind of like rewarding you for doing something good, dynorphins are supposed to be like if something bad happens. And, um, and that includes social punishment, which is kind of where I focused a lot on because that's, that gets weird because of how schizophrenia is stigmatized. Like, like almost in a sense, it's almost like you're punished for just even being diagnosed. Like, you're basically told your life is ruined if you're diagnosed, which makes you probably worse. Yeah.
And um, so the idea would be kind of like that at some point there's like, well, I think there's two different things that would go on there. there I don't know if there's actually just a pure threshold where some amount of stress would induce hallucinations, but I think a second part that probably matters more is probably like recurring strong experiences of stress would probably like amplify some sensitivity to whatever eventually causes the hallucinations. Um, so like if you were to take, say like, I don't know, like, like so, some of the points that I focus on are uh, dopamine drugs, because uh, that's, that used to be like how they would, talk about like schizophrenia because they would notice like people on stimulants would get stimulant psychosis. And, um, and there was also like a dopamine theory of schizophrenia, which I, so, so the other thing is like all these different theories, they're not like, I don't think they're exclusive. Um, so I would urge anyone out there to not see them that way. It's not like, it's like, like even the dynorphin hypothesis, it's not like dynorphin solely explains any of it. I think it's just more like a untalked about aspect of um, schizophrenia because it just is sort of newer or hasn't been looked at as much. Mm, and it's such a multi-dimensional um, uh, approach to something where it's, there's not just a one size um, or one answer, one size fits all. It's, it's how all of these collectively um, may influence a person because each individual will respond differently and have maybe there's there's always a normal and through that normal you can gauge okay most people respond in this way most people have this side effect or um, most people respond in this specific way but um, yeah yeah so like with dopamine drugs. I don't know. The research is a little, I don't know. I think someone has told me once that you can get hallucinations just from a single dose, but I think it's like, it just gets so hazy because it's like, then it's like, you might wonder like, were they predisposed to schizophrenia? But then you might wonder, what does that even mean? And that might mean that they have had experiences or were born in a state that's as if they were already taking the drug for a really long time, even yeah. though they haven't been. So it's like, I don't know, but I generally think that most people probably aren't going to get, let's say maybe the most severe psychotic effects on the first doses. I think they might get like paranoid and sort of like all energetic and hyped out, you know, like I would say maybe even hypomanic kind of effects from stimulants at first, but then I think usually what happens is like over time you might start getting more side effects which are related to like dynorphin type of effects which i think like when people start getting like the crawling sensations and stuff i think that's related to that um i actually did a project on that particular symptom i think it's like uh I don't know. I think it's sort of like, like what I, cause I actually have experienced that effect, the crawling sensation. And at first I thought there was like bed bugs or something. Cause I only noticed it when I was in bed, but then I also noticed like when I started to like analyze it more, the only time I would notice it is like basically right when I went under the blanket and the blanket's like depressing on top of my legs, that's when it would feel like crawling. And then I realized it's like, it's moving my like hairs on my legs and that feels like crawling. And, um, but I noticed like before that, or even in other times after that, like if my leg hairs move, it doesn't feel like that. And I think that part of it is that there's actually gating that would make it so that you don't, and you're basically like filtering out yeah. those sensations. Yeah. And, um, Whereas I don't you know if you focus ever... on that and, and, and hype it in your mind. So your brain, there'd usually be a filter or a threshold. And if it doesn't pass that threshold or if you experience it, like wearing clothing, you don't really feel you, yourself wearing clothing unless you focus on it because you're wearing it all the time that your body's like, oh, it's, not a, it's not an issue. It's not past that threshold. Whereas some people, like what you're explaining, 
is your body doesn't really have that or if it does it's very sensitive so you would experience everything and almost hyper experience it and then associate what you're feeling as in it, the blanket pressing on your legs to this is skin crawl this must be something crawling so it's not only that you're experiencing hey this is this is what's happening your mind is taking that and then amplifying it to something completely different that's very interesting yeah i think it's kind of like if you actually see ants or if there was an ant on you like you won't sometimes you don't like feel it but then you see it and then like you get rid of the ant but then you start thinking there's ants all over you for like 15 minutes or something i think that's like kind of like because now you're expecting it mm. and do you think that um by you understanding okay this is just a threshold that um my body may or may not have my brain um, is there a possibility of me understanding that these are just my thoughts? It's not necessarily reality. There are no potential um, school of bed bugs crawling all over me. There could be, but maybe, maybe not. Um, and 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 just calming the mind and breathing into that. Or do you find that in that situation, it's actually quite difficult to um, detach from those thoughts and say, "Look, I am not these thoughts. I'm the one who is receiving these thoughts." Is that? I think for. I think for the part about whether or not I believe they're bugs, that part's really easy to just, like I never thought they were bugs moving forward from that moment. Yeah. And I might even like actually have a bug on me and then think it's not a bug because I've decided that it, it's not oh, wow. going to be one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um, I think that phasing out the sensation of it is not as easy but it's usually like i don't really experience that sort of symptom much so like but i did for like a couple months in a period um would you find that actually meditation would help people previously in your situation or do you think that that would be naive to suggest um that applying something like that could could work that's really tricky meditation has sort of been linked to like inducing psychotic effects but i think but i don't think it's i don't think it's like something where i don't know i think it's way trickier like it could go either way probably wow um like i think meditating might help with like things like disorganized thinking like i've done like meditations for like four hours straight where i was like it was like an experimental thing where i i would just count uh numbers basically and i would imagine the picture of the number and how it sounds in a particular voice and also the sensation of writing it and when i would do that uh after that four hours for like a whole week i was just like um i don't know all my thoughts were like really vivid and i was like having clarity for a while yeah. but um and i imagine that would be good but I also think that you might be more prone to like hearing voices or something weird, maybe mm -hmm. if you did that. And if you had to keep reminding yourself that the voices that you hear or the things that you're experiencing, you are the one who is interpreting those experiences, whether or not they're, they're real or not is, is a you are the interpreter. Um, you're not these voices and or these other entities. Um, that is just what you're experiencing currently and come back to your breath. If you're hearing a voice, just come back to your breath. If you are hearing any external noise, come back to your breath. If you're feeling scared, come back to your breath. And it's always like reaffirming to just come back to your breath and come back to yourself and just come on. You actually wrote in uh, one of your blogs was on cannabis and how that may decrease hallucination. I found that very interesting because of exactly what you said. It's like there's a, a growing body of research that would say that um, the consumption of cannabis could increase hallucination but then maybe cbd is different to actually smoking marijuana because one is just like the oil or something that um you know would help with people who have um chronic pain or anything like that whereas the other one is actually has induced hallucinating impact so i'll, I'll uh, clarify a couple things um so so my i would say my radical take is that and i would say nobody try this at home too but um, my radical take is actually that the classic psychedelics might be useful for schizophrenia but i think it's pretty mixed like i don't know because a lot of people tell me about 
situations where they've known people that have been horribly affected by them. Um, but uh, I do actually think cannabis would increase hallucinations, though. So that take is not mine. But um, I don't necessarily think cannabis is like horrible because of that. Like I for for like a whole year, I was like intentionally and awaringly trying to reach sort of like psychotic states on it because I was curious and trying to understand it more. Um, and I kind of felt like I noticed benefits to what it was doing as well. Like it wasn't just pure bad, but there were a lot of bad things that made it hard to do normal things. But I think it's sort of like, it's sort of tricky. Like, like our society isn't built to cater to somebody that's like in that state of mind. So it's like, but there were like benefits in like changing how I see almost everything really like I could kind of reconceptualize things and it kind of seemed to accelerate the rate of my beliefs changing. So like um, I would change how I saw people. I would change how I saw how people work. Um, I had a lot of weird realizations about like, like how tone of voice affects people in weird things. And I started experimenting with that on cannabis, like I would uh, purposely change the tone of my voice and watch how people just suddenly drastically change. Like I would talk really submissively and then like I would talk really dominantly back to back and notice that like the other person would switch from being dominant over me to being submissive to me, kind of. That's a lot of the nonverbal cues that you are actually picking up is most communication is nonverbal. So it's not necessarily what you're saying. It's how you're saying it. What is your eye contact? What is your body language? All of that plays a crucial role. And interestingly, um, uh, there's been a lot of studies of that, of, of what you've picked up, is when people speak in a deeper manner, like a much deeper voice, um, that actually is associated with leadership. It kind of like ties in with the, so like the earlier topic about like how I think our perceptions are totally molded by basically rewards and punishment i think that that's kind of ties into this where it's like i don't know like whoever we become or identify as is like just something that was rewarded over time or even that other aspects of ourselves were cut away because of punishment mm -hmm. and um but interestingly when you meet people who let's say for instance you start playing guitar and you just love guitar there's actually been evidence that um memory can be passed down through dna and so, yes, there is behavior that's rewarded and punished, which will steer you in a specific direction. But there's also a predisposition when you're born to specific things that may attract you because there's an abundance of stimulus and specific things some kids will just love. And you're like, why do you love that? What made that kid love picking up a guitar? Was it that that guitar rewarded them? But maybe not because around them they had a guitar, they had a piano, they had uh, paints, they had an array of different things to you know, draw their attention that they could be rewarded to, why pick that one thing? And maybe it could be passed down through their DNA. Who knows? I mean, well, I mean, yeah, it, it's a very interesting topic. Yeah. I think the main benefits that I noticed from cannabis were pretty much like the thing you described about like, basically like how culture works. I think cannabis would just suddenly rip me out of that. And that's when I would start noticing like, what the culture is actually like like i wouldn't just be complacent to everything i would be like sort of confused like it's almost like a memory loss for the norms and stuff like that i sort of think that uh stuff like psilocybin or shrooms are the most useful in terms of things like compared to like cannabis or salvia or dissociatives dissociatives can be extremely useful for depression but i noticed there's like a i feel like you sink back after like a couple weeks or something like that which kind of scares me a little bit um but i noticed with like shrooms it's almost like like some of the effects can get as weird as or more probably more weird than cannabis but with cannabis, it's like, for some reason, if I get into those weird states, I feel like I'm just weird for like a week and I can't like, I don't know, like I'm like lazier and uh, 
more scared of things and like more uh i don't know sometimes it feels like more cozy but it's like usually like i don't know memory loss weird things like that but then with shrooms it's kind of like i just can go really far out and then like just come back and it's just like i don't know like seven hours later you're just like normal or better <laughs> so i don't know and from a chemical perspective a neuroclinical perspective what do you think happens when people take lsd um or mushrooms but then with psychedelics i think it's like possibly targeting closer to um kind of uh, let me think how to say it targeting closer to like some mechanism related to uh how we became trained into this way of being in the first place so like i think it's kind of taking us out of our training like all the things where so so actually like getting into i think if we go into addiction and trauma and that stuff and like think of it through that lens it's it'll make more sense so like uh people talk about psychedelics like being useful for addiction and trauma uh, which I've found both subjectively in my case to be true, um, even to the point of, and there is a study on this too that's kind of interesting, or at least a study on one of the mechanisms that is a common target of many psychedelic drugs uh, showing this effect is that um, I actually wouldn't get withdrawal effects if I took psychedelics and then just stopped whatever it was, um, which I don't know how reliable that would be, but I've experienced it where I was having withdrawals before and then I took it and then it's just gone and never happened. And um, there is like some research that showed that that um, could be an effect of 5-HT2C receptors which are not generally thought of to be the same receptors as the whole typical like psychedelic effect receptors. Those are the 5-HD2A receptors. Although I think that both of those kind of probably factor into the effects. Um, but uh, so moving back to the whole like addiction thing and trauma thing, um, addiction is you can sort of like think of it as like like all of these both of these things are kind of like conditioning and that's kind of like the lens i focus a lot on for almost all my way of seeing psychological things is uh conditioning like the idea that we can be trained to like respond to rewards or punishment and not just punishment not necessarily punishment in the sense of like someone like, I don't know, hitting you or something like that or doing something like that, but just like, you might even think of like, just tripping and falling is like punishing you for not being able to walk correctly or something. Um, and uh, so like with addiction, it's kind of like cycles of being rewarded and punished where like you're rewarded for taking it and then punished for stopping. And then trauma is kind of like you're punished or harmed maybe is a better word and then uh, you kind of have this reaction that's trained into you to like attempt to cope with your fear of experiencing that pain again and um so like if say i don't know like if you get into a car crash you might be afraid to get into cars after that because that solves the problem of ever getting into a car crash again and um I think that if you think of that, rather than just thinking of like the extreme reactions of like addiction and trauma, I think it's like a whole scale of like just small punishments and small rewards, just kind of like a spectrum, you know, on both sides. And I think most of our lives are pretty much just entirely focused on that. Like, like, uh, I don't know, like we're constantly seeking to feel good, make our lives better, and not always in the immediate, like also it's like the reason we have jobs is partly because we're afraid to like starve to death or um, like we want to buy things or whatever it is. Delayed gratification as well. So you're willing to withdraw or endure 
a lot of pain now, like sitting behind a desk working in a job you really don't want to do, because you know that if you do that for five days or three months, you can go on holiday and have a really nice time, more so than you would if you didn't, because you wouldn't have the finances to be able to do that. Yeah. I think the way psychedelics tie into that is by disrupting. I think they somehow disrupt, like in the same way that I mentioned the study about disrupting like the withdrawal symptoms, for example, I think that they're, and also like how people talk about psychedelics helping with trauma. I think that they're doing something that's like disrupting our conditioned sense of rewards and uh, like fears or punishments. And um, I think even the weird perceptual effects, I think they're actually related to this. Like, I think kind of like the culture thing you mentioned, like we're all just like in these weird feedback loops of like identity and kind of assumptions about how the world works. And we're just kind of complacent to all of that. Not really like thinking like of how strange it is that we're just like these weird creatures living like this. <laughs> And I think, uh, I think okay. I was, uh, well, go ahead. <laughs> oh, I was just saying that, that what you've just touched on there is actually when you're born, that's why. Um, so I think what that, that exact thing is what's helped us evolve over time is um, when you're born, you're born into a culture, you don't really know anything. And that, that exact is um, what gives children the ability to learn languages that are so vastly different is that you're born with the ability to learn a language. But depending on which culture you're born into, you'll learn, okay, this is what's important within this culture. This is the language that I need to learn. This is, and that's how you survive. So that um, the fact that we don't question really what our culture is, we just morph into it, is because um, that is what's allowed us to work within larger groups and continue to build and fight and conquer and whatever, is that you're born into it. You don't really have an idea of what's going on. You watch and you learn and then you 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 know okay if i um plow a field or if i if i pick cotton and i'm born into a cotton picking family or a cotton picking society i will thrive because i am doing what everyone else is doing in order to boost that society yeah so i think that's deeply embedded into our psyche actually is um is that uh, ability to adapt and to um adapt into the culture in which we are born to pick up on those social cues, even though nobody directly says, hey, do this, you will watch as a kid and notice what everyone's doing and then fit into that. And that's how we don't walk around naked. Most people don't walk around naked because yeah. we know, okay, we watch everyone else. They're putting on clothes and shoes and, okay, this is what fashion, what is fashionable? Oh, well, I'm looking at what most people are wearing and what is the response that they're getting? And, okay, cool, I know what I should and shouldn't be wearing. <clears throat> yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah. I think like psychedelics kind of like, well, you actually touched on something there that gets into, so like, I don't know, one of the hypotheses that I have is that psychedelics might bring um, your state of mind closer to that, like a child or an infant. And um, uh, what you mentioned about the language thing, you know, one of the things I wish we could test is if, um, like if psychedelics would alter people's like ability to learn new languages, especially ones where the phonetics are like different. Cause like, so like, like a lot of people get lisps when they try to learn a new language in adulthood because of like phonetic differences. And um, I think that part of that might involve. Um, so like, I don't know, like the, there was, um, I think there's a study about it that talks about like phoneme sensitivity and how it changes for like, as we get older or as we, after we learn languages and stuff where like infants are like sensitive to all the different phonemes that could exist in any language. But then um, after that, they get uh, more rigid. Yeah, like they only recognize the ones from their language. Mm. 
So it's very interesting. Um, children, they, they're called feral. So feral children are children. They're very rare cases that have happened where a child has been treated really badly, like abused, like as in put in a room and been treated like an animal. So never been spoken to nothing. Um, or alternatively, they were abandoned and they were found in the forest. Um, and these children never were exposed to any language. And post the age of five, they will actually never be able to acquire language um, because they they haven't had those fundamental building blocks. It's, it's, it is quite interesting. But children, um, once you learn one language um, or you learn more than one language, those neural pathways are already there. So it's actually easier to acquire multiple languages. So you're building the neural pathways to say, okay, well, hello in English is very different to um, bonjour or, or whatever it may be. And so you will say, okay, now I can think in terms of multiple languages. So you're building those. Oh, another thing that's really interesting, this kind of connects back to the uh, the whole uh, plasticity thing, is that, I don't know, there's one uh, psychologist uh, from a while back that she was, um, uh, so she researches like infant perception. Mm -hmm. And one of her hypotheses is that children have synesthesia, which is like crossing of senses. And that like this gets pruned away. I think they said it like it was either eight weeks or eight months, probably eight months, I think, though. And um, and I don't know. So it's really interesting because people take psychedelics and experience synesthesia. And I was thinking that maybe like with infants, maybe everything is just like, interconnected because you need to connect like, like I think language itself is kind of like synesthesia. Like when I say like dog, you conjure like this concept of what it means. And I think the reason we do it so fast with language is basically because it's synesthetic, but I don't think it's fully like sensory, if that makes sense. I think it's like a weird kind of like a sub-sensory synesthetic network. I think it is sensory for some people, um, but, um, and I think also like if you were to hear like a dog barking, the way that you kind of like associate the bark with the actual animal making the sound, mm. I think that's kind of synesthetic, but it's like a lot of those are like the ordinary forms of synesthesia. Mm. But then if you like start crossing senses in weird ways, that's when it gets like trippy. Um, and I think that like children, they're probably like trying to build this, uh, just their perception of the world by relying on these kind of synesthetic networks in the brain and kind of like creating all these like cross networks and then like cutting away all the wrong patterns. And I think like that's where like the pruning comes in. Um, if you think of it like like just streams of water where it's like all of your like habits and addictions and all these things, they're just like, like you see the video game, it just turns on this like faucet, it goes all the way to the craving and then it's just like, bam, it's on. Mm. And like everything is like going like that. But then what if you were to like plug all those streams and then you just like, you just see the video game and it's just like some thing that's there. It's just a bunch of pixels. It's just like some alien device sitting on the desk or something like that, you know, like rather than this is the device that I'm so familiar with and it makes me feel good and it is related to all these memories. Instead, it's just like this weird plastic shape that's just there, you know, like you're yeah. seeing with your senses instead of all of your reward and punishment memories that yeah. are guiding everything yeah. and i think it might like and because of that though maybe when you plug all of that it's like just going to induce plasticity because now it's like you're not being rewarded like something's different like the way you're interfacing with the game is now like like maybe when you see it normally you're like oh this is really exciting i'm gonna get high oh my god i want to do it but then like in the psychedelic state, you're just like, oh, okay. And then you look at like the wall and you're like, wow, it's the wall and the game are like equally interesting. Look at the pattern on the wall. Like, it's so intricate. Like, I'm just going to go look closer and you get like, and you just start like doing that. I feel like, I don't know. You're kind of like, you're, I don't know. I think all the rewards and incentives and everything get flip flopped, even if you didn't want them to. Uh, while you're on them 
And that's good, maybe. Um, so the benefit from an evolutionary perspective of of having those um, um, a construct, having these specific constructs um, that are built upon hundreds and thousands of um, neurological pathways. I mean, we've got so many neural connections in our brain that it's like more stars or more sand on, on all of Earth. I mean, it's just it's stupid what what is happening in our mind. It's really phenomenal. Um, and the advantage of that is it's easier for you to um, exist within this environment. So for me, I'll see a yoga mat. And if you're on drugs, you probably will say, whoa, I don't even know what that is. That looks like it's it's literally the same as the wall. There's really no difference. But by you um, having those, that built up of memory and of associations with that item, you're more able, you're more equipped to use that item uh, to potentially benefit you and to enhance your sense of survival. So at the end of the day, let's go back to we're an animal. Um, how do we survive? Our basic needs are to reproduce so that our um, offspring, our, our species will continue, eat um, and sleep. And, and, and those are our basic needs. And in order to do that, if we socialize with other people, if we build, okay, hey, if you and I work together to kill this animal, we can both eat. Okay, cool. Now that brings in your social element. So all of that is our basic building blocks and everything really builds off of that. And so it is interesting what you're talking about because by disassociating with all of that, you're no longer stuck in potentially these very harmful patterns of seeing a video game and then spending all day, every day, just getting high playing games and you're destroying your life. Um, but the benefit of having those associations is you're better able to adapt and, and, and equip yourself with your such a complex environment. And with a society, I find it becomes more and more complex. So we're always adding a heightened sense of complexity, even to the way that we're interacting right now. Micro expressions will um, we'll pick up on micro expressions. We'll pick up on tonalities. There's so much complexity in our everyday waking state. So to to actually be able to interpret so much complexity and then not only interpret it, but then come back and have this feedback, there's a lot going on. So it's good to disassociate if you are engaging in harmful behaviors to reevaluate. But um, to completely disassociate would be a very interesting way of being. I don't even know if you would be able to survive because you wouldn't yeah. even be able to associate what food is. I mean, what is food? Food is a reward. Well, why do you get rewarded when you eat? Because you're providing your body with the nutrients it needs to survive. You know, you're breaking down all of those rewards and um, harmful behaviors or rewards and punishment, why would you eat? Why would you why would you do anything? Why would you go to the toilet? You know, yeah, it, it, yeah you, you you would probably die. I don't think that you would be able to survive. One of the other conversations I find very interesting is what happens on DMT. So I've personally never done it, but I've read a fair bit about it. And a lot of people say that like it's it's weird the amount of people that have had a similar experience. So they'll say they've taken DMT they see everything in fractals, which you can sort of get from um, LSD or from mushrooms. But then you people say that they get taken to like a woman or like a, an entity that'll that'll question them or something. And it's very weird that a lot of people have experienced a similar thing. So I was just curious, what were your thoughts when you've taken DMT? And what did that make you, what did you experience? And what did that make you view reality as because some people are like well maybe taking dmt like breaks the fabric of space time in the sense that you can see everything in fractals and maybe everything is actually fractals i don't know hmm. the fractals topic is really weird i don't know i well hmm, i don't know that's a really weird one because i think it's almost like stacking echoes or something that are occurring that are like creating a bunch of mathematical patterns and the more there's like echoing i don't know but that's also speculation but uh so dmt that that whole thing where people report stuff like that is actually what scares me about dmt like i feel really concerned the other thing that makes me concerned is that like people changing like their whole beliefs after taking them that really scares me a little bit i know yeah oh, that's why i was like have you taken dmt before i have but i didn't get that far i took it out of a vape and um the effect was really good i didn't actually even get to the point of fractals but it was like um 
I don't know. It was probably the same sort of effect. I might get on like two grams of mushrooms or something. Mm. Um, but it was, it was like really weird mentally. Like I started having weird thoughts that felt like they were outside of, I don't know. Like they were extremely difficult to articulate, but they felt really significant. And then like after I thought them, it felt like they were just like disappearing and I was like clinging, trying to like bring them back. And it was like some weird, great seeming epiphany about like, I don't know, like society or life or like the way that it is to be alive. And um, like that was really weird. And like, I still sort of do think and maybe this is concerning, but I really also still do think that there was something valid in it. But I also wonder if like, I wonder if even if there were something valid to it, I wonder if like it's too inarticulatable that uh, that when people do bring it back, they just start talking like about sort of like mystical things. Mm. Because it is sort of a mystical thing. Like, I would say that is a mystical experience, but I wonder if that's just, like, it's just sort of, like, a fit-in for, like, I don't know how to tell you what happened. <laughs> but it was so significant, and I just don't have words. <laughs> that was so phenomenal, because it does make you wonder, like, when you start to experiment with all these different drugs and it just completely shifts the way you view the world, even with disassociatives, it really makes you wonder, maybe not so much as associatives because that just blocks the way your perception of objects, which is still very interesting. But when you start to um, see fractals or, um, you know, experience an abundance of love or something like that, um, it, sometimes it makes you wonder, like, how how much construct do we impose upon the world around us? And even within this table, like, what differentiates this table from everything else within this room. You know, there's a gravitational pull. Um, there's uh, a lot of particles densely packed together. Um, but, you know, really, like, what what makes my body stay in form? You know, when things, what makes m m all of Alexa um, so eager to stay together in one physical body? And the fact that I can interpret that, um, what what is reality? And when you take psychedelics, it's like it shifts your view of what reality itself even is to the sense of like yeah i don't know it's it imagine with and then maybe in the future we'll have this is like technology that would enhance our because we can only see a specific spectrum of colors we can only hear a specific um uh, amount of sound waves um you know our physical body can only um our receptors can only receive a specific amount of input what happens if you had to open that gateway and be able to receive so much more input than we previously would have. What would the world look like? And do psychedelics in a way maybe open that up? Like you're saying with um, synesthesia, you know? What, yeah, I do have ideas about this. This, so what I noticed the last time that I did um, a small amount of shrooms, I think it was two grams, what I noticed was that well, so I was in the forest sitting next to a creek and I could single out um, a tree and like focus in on it. And it would be like almost as if there was just that one tree and everything else is just blurry or noise or even just totally faded out. But then I could do this thing where I would look at all of the trees at once and it would look really weird and like three dimensional, like I'm not used to it. And uh, and I think that, well, so there's like some, this is going to sound weird at first, but stay with me. <laughs> there's some research on video games where um, they had people play like first person shooters and they actually noticed that they would track objects on the screen better or like notice more and stuff. And I think it's all based on just what we're trained to do with our eyes. Like, and I think, I think by the time we become an adult, I think we just forget what it was like to be like maybe a child or whatever. And then we just kind of assume this is just how it's always been. And that 
this is just what it's like to look at things with our eyes. But then like on streams, it's like, I suddenly do this thing where it's like, now I'm seeing all of the trees and I'm like, just shocked. <laughs> and, um, and I noticed that after doing that though, my, that stuck with me even after the experience, like for a really long time, like when people were talking to me, like I would notice the whole background and it would look like really freaky and weird, kind of like overwhelming, like too much senses. And, um, but then it would always like fade away. And I think it fades away because it's unnecessary and it's not rewarding actually. But I think also at first it's rewarding because it's novel or it's kind of like shocking, like, whoa, this is suddenly interesting. Everything looks like different. That's exciting. And then I think by the time it gets boring, then it just goes back to like lazy vision mode or something. But then the video gamers, I think they're like, they're actually winning the game by doing that. So like they're like expanding their perception because it's actually getting them like euphoric by winning the game against other players. And then they're competitively like sculpting their perception based on the game. <laughs> and um, and I think that would be the same for like people who like learn music as children or uh, learn probably sports or something. They would probably shape their perception differently. And like probably all of our perceptions are like subjectively trained and all different from each other and um and i actually think probably this this is speculation again but i bet the whole sensory overload thing with autism i bet it's probably like they didn't sculpt it and didn't start filtering out things so maybe like some of the experiences on psychedelics allow you to somewhat emulate what it might be like to be autistic in some cases or something. Mm. And, um, and I do, I do think that there is a, like a whole, like, like the floodgates thing. Um, I think that like our ability to get rewards is not just in being aware of everything around us. It's also by not being aware of it, like to be able to ignore all the things that would just overwhelm us. And then when we do the psychedelics, it's like, you can just, I feel like we just become free from that limited framing. I think there's also a lot of other weird things I've experienced with like, like when I look at a tree or something, it's no longer just, um, like I, I can sort of back away from a lot of what I learned about the tree in life. Like, like, so we assume instantly that it's not going to move. It's not a sentient thing that's going to walk around or something like that. And I think that that sort of like assumption is sculpting our prediction of the tree's behavior in the world. And even like things like the border of like, where does the tree and like the background start and end? Mm. Like, what does it feel like? Like, is it going to be like this rubbery object that just flails around or is it going to be like a rock and like all this stuff? And um, like, I kind of had an experience where I was able to just like back away from all this like weird semantic conceptualization of the tree. And it was just like light. Like I'm just looking at a picture of pixels of light mm. and the more that I would like kind of sink into that and kind of meditate into it, it would like, it would actually start to drift and get weird. Like I would stop seeing the tree being separate from the background and it would sort of start to bleed together and like sort of like, like the lines that existed, like between like say lines in the mountain behind and lines in the tree, they would start to like, just kind of, go together and stuff like like i would start making different representations of what i'm seeing so like the line going off like a branch might continue part of the background all of a sudden and like create like a i don't know like a face or like a dog or like just some other picture usually it wasn't like that though it wasn't like a recognizable thing it would just be like morphing strange patterns and shapes and then like, I would keep going into that and eventually it would be kind of like, I don't know, like almost fractally. And like, it almost felt like because I was dropping away from the senses. So, or not the senses, dropping away from like the familiar representation of like lines and shapes and recognizable objects that 
it's almost like it was just leaking and like I wasn't able to determine exactly what I'm seeing anymore. And it was just like this weird soup of like, you know, like colors like twisting around and getting weird. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder if that's what like monks, like I, I actually did a podcast <laughs> with a monk, um, a Buddhist monk, Ben Chai, very cool guy. I used to meditate with him um, quite a lot. And anyway, I was like, what he's been meditating for like 20 30 years and i was like what happens when you like keep doing this like for hours and he's like look i can't tell you because if i tell you you're going to have a pre uh idea of what you're looking for and therefore <laughs> you'll never really know like is that actually what you're experiencing or is that because i'm telling you that that's what you should be experiencing and i was like yeah no fair enough but i always wonder like is that what they would experience is like this total breakdown of the physical world like because that's what you read about in terms of like enlightenment so to speak is like this or, or they say you know we reincarnate and eventually by stop you stop reincarnating and you join nirvana what happens if nirvana is realizing that all of this actually is an illusion that all of this is a construct that we are all you know but then i sometimes think about energy and i'm like okay if any everything is energy everything is an exchange of energy um and all of us are born on this planet earth and earth within itself is a collision of of, of giant meteors and it's just it's just energy um you know when we die we will return back because we're not really leaving so you can never return back to something that you've never really left um yeah i don't know maybe it's just the you know um complexity the way that that a single cellular organism multiplies to a multicellular organism is just um having something really simple become more and more complex and we are just that complexity of the universe experiencing itself in its infinite complexity i do sometimes question like is this a simulation um are we all trapped within this matrix quote unquote but if we are does that really matter if we're if this is all a matrix and we're all trapped in it what's the outcome the outcome's still the same how could you really yeah. enjoy this video game as much as you possibly can if uh, yeah if if like you said you disappear into this total light of all existence then maybe this is nirvana or maybe this is what the buddha says like reincarnation we keep living in this video game trap well how do you break away from the trap well you just enjoy it <laughs> and if it's not yeah. a trap and this is reality just fucking enjoy it <laughs> i don't know that's my view what are you writing about um it's actually fiction it's about ai but it's kind oh. of like it's kind of philosophical and psychological it's kind of like ideas that i've i don't know it's almost like a lot of the ideas from the blog being turned into like uh i kind of want to turn it into like an animation thing maybe or like some sort of series um i don't know and i've been using like ai art which is getting crazier yeah. and crazier yeah. It's like changing which directions I go with the story based on how it disobeys me, kind of. Wow. <laughs> and like, so I'll start like conforming the story to like different things that the AI comes up with. And like, or I'll get like some spontaneous idea because of the AI. And it's like kind of co-writing. <laughs> Far out. That's so weird. What what AI art are you using? Um, at first I was using Wombo, but then I'm now using Midjourney, but it's yeah. a specific uh type of mid journey called niji or something like that yeah. which is like it supposed to be the best for making like sort of like more animated pictures or whatever would well, you have to pay for it i'm guessing you probably do yes <laughs> yeah it's like um 30 dollars a month or something oh that's not even that bad the book is about when ai goes very wrong <laughs> oh great uh you know how that's what kind of scares me is like a lot yeah. of people have done that and so when you look at like sci-fi in the past they'll talk about like traveling to other planets and so on and that can actually help us create technology today is like it starts with imagination and then we actualize it if everybody is imagining ai going bad aren't we going to actualize that future because <laughs> we're all co-creating it gage thank you so much for this conversation has been truly enlightening and very interesting um and what I ask everyone at the end is if you had one message to share with the world, what would it be? 
we have to stop the AI from being created. No, I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> no. Um, I would say a lot of people are like creating their own, like all this stuff we talked about today, it fits in perfectly. All, all of us are kind of like conditioned to think of ourselves as some way. And we're kind of like, I think we're all living in like self-fulfilling prophecies constantly. And I think a lot of us are like destroying ourselves. Like so many people are like, like there's this whole black pill culture and like, I don't know. I think it's like, like people, people are like, they think they're being scientific a lot of the time or being reasonable or practical or pragmatic, but actually it's like, I think of it more like when people are like predicting what's going to happen in the future and like how their life is going to go and all of the predicted outcomes, like they don't try new things because they think they know how it's going to go or not even new things, but like they don't try to change things because they predict it. I think it's actually like they're, they're actually being religious. <laughs> they're actually having prophecies of the future that they're like committing themselves to. And it's not reasonable at all. But, but I also think that those prophecies are like the only thing we can cling to, to not feel insane. And a lot of people are like deciding to avoid the scary outcome of like, I don't know, things failing because it's better to just give up and not do anything and just accept, like just go numb and dissociated with their like painful lives. I think instead people should not do that. I don't know. Like people should, I don't even know what the word would be, but be more, mm, have hope, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Be the future you want to see maybe. Yeah. You don't like the outcome of the situation you're creating. Could you not create a different outcome? I think maybe maybe it will be become aware of that you don't know how your life works and constantly try to be aware of that. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're going to assume how it works and you're probably wrong. Yeah. And if it's hurting you, then you should definitely not be assuming it. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Well, thank you so much. And, uh, Thank you also. This was awesome.